Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe, Asia, where we discuss news, views and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Beck Strading, the Executive Director of La Trobe, Asia. Asia is a vibrant and diverse region where rivalries and confrontation can coincide with increased economic cooperation and community development. However, the emergence of strategic and economic competition between China and the United States threatens to destabilize Asia. What are the dominant political and economic trends shaping Asia's contested order now and in the future? What flashpoints are analysts and policymakers most concerned about? And how will COVID-19 affect these regional dynamics? Here with me to discuss these important issues is James Crabtree. James has recently stepped into the role of Executive Director of the International Institute for Strategic Studies Asia. Welcome James, it is terrific to have you on the podcast and congratulations on your new appointment. Very good, thanks very much for having me back, it's delightful to be here. I appreciate that you've taken uh, some time to speak with us because you are deep in preparations for this year's Shangri-La Dialogue. For those of you who don't know the IISS Shangri-La Dialogue, it is Asia's premier defence summit. So I thought I would begin our discussion by asking you, what do you see as being the key themes, issues and events that will dominate the dialogue this year? Yeah, you're right. I think it's worth not everyone listening or watching will know about Shangri-La, which is a gathering of defense ministers principally, but also uh, members of defense establishments from around Asia and around the world, which happens in Singapore once a year. Um, This year is happening at the beginning of June, so in 32 days from now, not that I'm counting. In the Shangri-La Hotel in Singapore, it's happened for roughly the last two decades. This year is particularly significant because it's the first time that this has been relaunched after COVID. So last year, the event didn't happen, as was true with, with many other events. And so it's the first time that we've had a big gathering and also a big in-person gathering as opposed to a virtual or hybrid uh, event of this kind. What's going to happen? I mean, I, I think the, the big theme will be the relationship between the US and China, two of the most watched sessions at the Shangri-La Dialogue involve the US Defense Secretary, who this morning confirmed he is going to come in person to the event, and also the senior representative of the Chinese military. And so a lot of attention will be paid on the messaging that comes out between the two big regional powers, but also how other players in the region are positioning themselves relative to that, how that is playing out both in terms of geopolitical competition, but also in terms of COVID recovery and other issues like cyber power, for instance, would be another one to watch. So I think that's the main area of focus that will play out over the course of the two days of the Shangri-La Dialogue. So I'm hoping to ask you about the quadrilateral security dialogue that has had a lot of attention in the region, this grouping uh, between the United States, India, Japan and Australia. Do you see the quadrilateral security dialogue as being something that is uh, likely to be discussed at the Shangri-La dialogue? And I'm really curious to know what the attitudes or responses of other states in the region are to this security dialogue? So the quad has become much more prominent since the election of Joe Biden. And I suppose the other big point to say about the Shangri-La dialogue is this is the first big gathering in Asia since 
the new American administration and, and the new approach that, that they're taking, one of the big things they're trying to do is promote the Quad as a new way of doing business in this part of the world of managing the rise of China, but also doing other things as well. So the last big Quad announcement was about vaccine diplomacy and, and trying to provide uh, more vaccines to Southeast Asia. There isn't a formal component of the Shangri-La dialogue which involves the Quad, so you're not going to see all the Quad defense ministers on one panel, for instance. That's not something that we do there. But I think in the background, and certainly those ministers from Quad countries who attend, if they speak at the dialogue, then people will be watching to see, well, what do they say about the Quad? How prominently do they mention the Quad? Is there more details coming from Secretary Austin about what the Americans expect the Quad, what it's a developing agenda to be. So I think that's another thing that people will be watching quite closely. You mentioned the new Biden administration in the United States. This is one of the first kind of big forums that uh, the new administration will be involved with. Do you see that there's likely to be a substantial difference between the Biden administration's approach as opposed to the Trump administration in terms of talking about things like strategic competition, order to the role of China in the region, or talking about specific flashpoints of conflict or tension? Previously, some of the defense secretaries under Donald Trump, who spoke at the Shangri-La Dialogue, were seen as being voices of reason within a Trump administration, at times viewed as being erratic. And so there is some continuity in American policy between the Trump and Biden administrations, and also the defense administration, the defense secretaries who spoke at Shangri-La under Trump weren't as explosive as President Trump himself will have been. So I think there are elements of continuity in the US approach. Certainly, Biden is positioning himself to be tough on China in various different respects. Nonetheless, I think there will be a difference in tone. There's going to be more emphasis on traditional alliances in Asia, the relationship with Japan, South Korea, with the Philippines, all of whom will be represented. And so the countries who are part of the U.S. security umbrella will be looking to see what the U.S. says about their relationships. The same will be true with the European countries. So the United Kingdom, France, Germany, who who are typically represented uh, in some force at the Shangri-La Dialogue, then they will also be looking to see what the United States says about relationships with Europe, which wasn't something that Mr. Trump's administration was very keen on. But they themselves also need to say, well, what is their view of the United States now. So some countries like the United Kingdom tend to stick pretty close to the US. Others like Germany have more of a dilemma because the Europeans have a conception of European strategic autonomy. And so they are you know, trying to strike a balance between hoping that the United States and Europe are going to work more closely together, for instance, also in, in a region like Asia, but also trying to mark out their own independence and the independence of some of the European powers. So I think all of this is going to be part of what will make Shangri-La interesting. It's been a long time since you've had a gathering of this kind uh, in Asia or indeed anywhere in which everyone's going to be watching everyone else to see what they say and how they relate to one another. And of course, lurking behind all of this is the issue of China. Although we have the immediate context of COVID recovery in the aftermath of the pandemic, really in the backdrop of all of this is the relationship between the Western powers and their allies, the Southeast Asian neighbors, 
and how does everybody relate to China and what will China say when their uh, representative speaks from the podium at the dialogue. So do you have any guesses about what China's representative might be focused on during the dialogue? Any specific issues or areas of concern? I wouldn't prejudge that. I mean, I think you can get a sense of the way China tends to address these uh, gatherings by looking at the speeches that President Xi gives. So he gave one recently at the Boal Forum. He's spoken at Davos. He's given public speeches. And It's a mixture of trying to position China as a responsible world leader, trying to play some of the role that the United States abdicated during the Trump years, while also standing up robustly for China's interests. And I suppose that balance between China presenting itself as a responsible world leader, a kind of peer or successor to the United States on the one hand, and then the tendency towards what some people call wolf warrior diplomacy, the tendency to want to punch back strongly against China's critics. It's going to be that balance which people will be watching to see the tone of the Chinese leader's speech. And then there are obviously particular hot button issues such as rising concerns over the the future of Taiwan. People will be watching to see, well, what do the Americans say about this and, and what therefore do the Chinese say about this as well? One grouping in particular that I'll be watching out for, the ASEAN states. So there's been these conversations that recur when it comes to ASEAN, particularly in the context of what's been going on in Myanmar. And that's about the continuing sort of relevance of ASEAN as an institution and how it can manage regional issues. So what do you think that ASEAN states or representatives of ASEAN states are going to be talking about at the dialogue? Yeah, so it's important for your listeners who've not been to Shangri-La. So it's a security summit that is based in Southeast Asia, but it's also a security summit for Southeast Asia, as well as the countries around about. And therefore, a big part of the dialogue is giving a platform to Indonesia, Malaysia, Vietnam, our host country in Singapore and others to give their view on the evolving security dynamics of the region. The way to think about this at the moment, you have the specific issue of Myanmar, but you have a broader concern in Southeast Asia, which is in Southeast Asia, as you have noted, ASEAN is the central organizing principle, and therefore Southeast Asian nations want to ensure that ASEAN remains the central way in which this part of the world is organized. And there's a concern in this part of the world that the more we return to an age of great power politics, red in tooth and claw, in which the US and China were scrapping with one another in various respects during the Trump years, and even if that is happening now in a slightly less erratic way, it's nonetheless under Biden continuing to head in a competitive direction as opposed to a cooperative direction. And the the quad is part of this because the Quad is a new way of kind of balancing China, that all of this is problematic for ASEAN. And so I think what you're likely to see is a reaffirmation from the Southeast Asian countries of the importance of ASEAN to the extent that they talk about Myanmar, uh, references to the diplomacy that has been going on in this region that resulted in the five-point agreement on Myanmar that came out relatively recently, 
and a kind of plea for patience amongst the non-ASEAN powers that they don't give up on ASEAN and they continue to engage and work through ASEAN as the way that we do business in Southeast Asia and the wider region. So I think that's the tone of it, that there's nervousness that US and China in particular, but also great power politics in general, is going to place strains on the what in this part of the world they call ASEAN centrality, the idea that ASEAN should be the sort of center of things and that they will be pushing back against that. The second thing is that you know, some of the Southeast Asian countries have particular dynamics with the US and China, which people will be watching. So the Philippines here is a particularly interesting one where the Philippines leadership appears from the outside to be quite divided on what the position of the Philippines relative to China should be. Um, sometimes, as in yesterday, you had a senior Filipino politician on Twitter uh, firing off an expletive-laden fusillade against the Chinese. But then on other days, President Duterte goes to Beijing and strikes a very moderate tone towards China that's quite conciliatory. And so I think a lot of people will be watching for the language that these countries use with respect to the US and China. How much do they welcome the Biden administration? Do they say anything about the Quad? What do they say about China? What do they say about the South China Sea if they're a South China Sea claimant state? Or do they, in a sense, duck most of these difficult issues and just say something kind of broad and conciliatory? That's what I think we'll be watching for. Well, you mentioned the South China Sea. Uh, I'm wondering whether you think that there will be lots of references to the international rules-based order at the Shangri-La Dialogue, because I think one of the concerns that many states have is the ways that China is seen to challenge the existing rules in the maritime domain uh, in its activities and actions in the South China Sea. So a lot of these events happen in a kind of code and so the rules-based order is one of those code words, yes. So in previous Shangri-La dialogues, as people began to use this language, the US and those who are closest to it will talk up the fact that they believed in the rules-based order, and you'd hear a lot about that, and then the Chinese would say something quite different. So yes, we may see some of that. Equally, there's a question about who uses the language of the free and open Indo-Pacific, which is another more recent iteration of a similar kind of concept, although it, it has various differences in it, which has been used by the US and Japan and others, which exists in different iterations for other countries like Australia and even ASEAN. And so although this might sound like reading smoke signals, in a sense, that's what an event like this involves in its public component. You have the bit that goes on in public where the ministers give speeches and people ask questions, and you're watching quite carefully to see, are these phrases being used as much as they used to do? Are countries that used to talk about the free and open Indo-Pacific or the rules-based order, are they still using that language or are they using softer language that might be more better received in Beijing? And then, of course, there's everything that's going on behind the scenes. So a big part of the reason why all these countries come to the Shangri-La Dialogue is that they then have private meetings with one another in closed rooms. And so amongst the politicians and decision makers, there's a lot of focus on these bilateral and multilateral negotiations that are going on behind the scenes as well. And so that's a big focus, less so for those watching from the outside, but more so for those who are participating on the inside. 
So it is a security dialogue. So you'll be focusing, you know, a lot of attention on security and defense dynamics. But of course, there's a strong economic element in the strategic competition between the United States and China. And there's challenges for smaller and middle powers in trying to navigate or reconcile their security and their economic interests. Do you think that some of the economic multilateral forums or initiatives such as the Belt and Road Initiative are likely to be mentioned in the security context? It's possible, yes. There are a couple of areas where this might happen. So yes, infrastructure competition is one. And whether those countries who are seeking to provide an alternative to China and Chinese infrastructure largesse are going to be able to cooperate to make this happen. And so there are various attempts that have been made historically and are currently being made by United States and Japan and Europe and India to try and provide an alternative infrastructure framework to BRI. So that could come up. Another is technology competition in various different respects. So cyber and various kinds of military-related tensions is one thing. But then you also have the broader issue of supply chains and particular issues within that, like semiconductors. These could perfectly well come up to the extent that defense ministers want to talk about them. So they might come up with a, a more military component to them. But, uh, but yeah, they could certainly come up as I think, you know, will the broad topic of COVID-19 and the sort of where all of these countries are at in terms of the post-COVID environment, which has a military dimension, but also is a broader picture of regional cooperation and security. Well, that was going to be my final question, and that's to get your perspective on how COVID-19 is affecting regional security and economic trends. It's had a big effect in all sorts of different ways. For starters, there's the question from a pure security military point of view, are defence budgets declining because of the economic effect of COVID? IISS puts out a large survey every year called the military balance, and it seemed to suggest that actually the economic hit from COVID had not reduced defense expenditure in this part of the world, except in a few cases. And so that didn't seem to be happening. But I think it's a broader question of how COVID has affected the effectiveness of particular countries. So if you look at an example like India, which, as we're recording, is, is really struggling, sadly, with a difficult third wave of COVID, what will that do to India's ability to participate in the broader security environment? And what limitations does the ongoing effect of the COVID pandemic and its management place on countries' abilities to defend themselves, but also the way that they're cooperating with one another? So as we mentioned before, one of the things that the Quad grouping had done was instead of talking about supply chains or Belt and Road or about maritime security, the Quad decided it was going to talk about vaccines. And so in a post-COVID environment, it's perfectly possible that having this regional conversation about security, that one of the most important ways you can have that is to talk about COVID and COVID recovery, because that's really what countries need. And so as the US and China are competing with each other in this region, then competing to be helpful in the process of COVID recovery, whether that's with vaccines or in other ways, is a theme that is a big part of what's going on in the region at the moment. And I think it's certainly likely that that will be reflected in some respect at the Shangri-La Dialogue. 
Okay, well, I see we've got a couple of questions in the Q&A box already. So for the moment, I might ask John Neve, please. John, take it away. Just how important is it to uh, increase foreign aid spending instead of defence spending? It's a good question, John. You're asking me a a kind of ideological question, I suppose. For the audience that comes to the Shangri-La Dialogue, they're principally from the defense establishment. And so they would be more concerned with military spending and whether or not if you are a defense minister, a chief of defense staff, or the permanent secretary of a defense department, those are the three principles on the government side who tend to come. So I think I know where they'd come down, which is that they would be primarily concerned with military budgets. But I think it's a broader issue that most countries have to think about in the round at the moment, particularly those for whom public budgets are tight. Are they going to cut back on foreign aid, as, for instance, the United Kingdom did to much criticism in the aftermath of COVID by stopping temporarily, we hope, the target to have 0.7% of GDP spent on foreign aid? Or are they going to, as some other countries have done, to try and stick to that and make accommodations elsewhere if they need to? I, to be honest, don't have a a kind of broad sense of how countries are doing that around the region. I suspect it's quite a variable picture where some countries are deciding that they need to spend more of their money at home. But countries like the United States under Biden, I think, are returning to a more generous frame of mind where they're more likely to let in more refugees or give more money and aid that might have been changed under the Trump administration. John, you have also asked another question, which I think is really important because sitting in on some of these dialogues and discussions that are heavily security and defence focused can sometimes sort of overlook or neglect to talk about one of the most pressing security challenges, which is climate change. So in your view, James, is climate change something, particularly with the new Biden administration, is this likely to be a significant issue? Yeah, I think it will be. So Shangri-La Dialogue has six plenary sessions, and one of those plenary sessions is given over to what we call environmental and human security threats and defense implications. And so that partially deals with climate. Human security also takes you into migration and people movement in the aftermath of climate, but also to some degree, that is a session where I think the kind of lessons from COVID would come into play. So I think increasingly you find defense establishments are taking climate very seriously as a medium to long-term threat. It's something that is no longer treated as a nice-to-have afterthought. It's certainly core to the way the IISS thinks about this, and it's a big part of our agenda I mean, I suspect the way people will be thinking about this now is partly conditioned by the growing wave of disasters that we've had every year that passes, but the last year has been a particularly bad one, but also the effect of COVID itself. How do you live with a world in which you might have less ability to travel because of climate regulations or more difficulties traveling? There's a whole bunch of learnings I think that people would take out of the COVID situation that could be applied to a future coping with the climate crisis as well. So it'll be a big part of what we'll be talking about at the dialogue. Okay, I think we've got time for one more question. So Hunter Marsden. Hi, Hunter. Hi, Beck. Thank you. And uh, thanks, James. Quick question for you. I'm thinking of an article you wrote last year, which I enjoyed in Foreign Policy, arguing that, that Biden had a credibility problem in Asia. 
So I'm wondering if you could update us on your perspective on the Biden administration. Has the team done enough to demonstrate U.S. resolve or credibility in Asia? Thanks, and uh, good to see you. Nice to talk to you. I think I was writing that article in the run-up to the election in which there were a lot of doubts about how the Biden administration was going to behave in this part of the world, particularly amongst those countries who were concerned about China. So in Japan, India, in the more hawkish parts of the Australian right, I think there was a worry that the US might revert to a much softer line on China, a more cooperative line. And there were some in Asia who were worried about that. I think the Biden administration will have done a good deal to assuage those doubts to the extent that I think Biden has been quite tough on China in his language. He has kept the economic tariffs. In many ways, he's actually moving forward on the technology competition agenda. And I think it's it's quite likely now that although Biden is going to be less erratic than Trump in the way that he handles policy, certainly on issues like advanced technology and semiconductors, he's probably going to be more punitive against China. So I think Biden and those who work for him, his secretary of state, his defense secretary, have gone some way to managing those doubts. But nonetheless, there are still worries in this region about US longevity. That doesn't go away. There's worries about what would happen if a more Trump-like Republican or Trump himself returned to the fold in three and a half years' time. And then there's always long-term worries about, you know, in the end, does the US have the staying power and is it indicating in the way that it's behaving that it is going to be staying in Asia for the long term? So I think a lot of people will be watching for that and to see what Secretary Austin in particular says about that and looking to see what that means on the ground and what sort of military resources are the US moving into Asia and at what speed in anticipation of tensions with China that more and more people talk openly that that may end up in, in some sort of military situation. And so I think the point that you're raising, Hunter, is a very good one. I think Biden has gone some way to assuaging those doubters, but still there's plenty of people who have medium to long-term worries about the role the US is going to play in this region and will be watching very carefully to see what Secretary Austin says about the administration's stance. Now, I hope you don't mind. I am going to sneak one more audience question in because I see that Malcolm Cook has put a question in the Q&A and it's a quick question, but it's very relevant to the Shangri-La Dialogue. So hi, Malcolm. Hi, Beck. Oh, and hey, James. I'm wondering if China's Xiangsang Defence Forum may threaten the Shangri-La Dialogue centrality itself. <laughs> it's a good question. I think we welcome all comers in this space. I think the Shangri-La Dialogue, I feel very good about the event that we're going to have this year, which is, despite the restrictions of COVID, going to have almost all of the defence ministers that we would want there. And, and I think it's going to prove to people that even in a COVID environment, we can have a big in-person event of the sort that we used to have prior to COVID and that in the years to come, there's going to be even more demand for these kind of events as Asia becomes ever more central to global geopolitics. And so I think for an event like the Shangri-La Dialogue, this remains a, a target-rich environment, to coin a phrase, but also one where there's room for others. I mean, that there's an excellent event that is comparable to the Shangri-La Dialogue that now um, is run by the Observer Research Foundation in India every year. Um, Chinese have such an event. And so I think this is a space where 
there need be no monopoly. We're going to continue to run an excellent event that people want to come to, but you know, there's plenty of space for others as well. James, I would like to wish you the best of luck with your ongoing Shangri-La dialogue preparations. I'm sure it's going to be a terrific event and we'll be watching very closely for what comes out of the discussions. You've been listening to Asia Rising, the podcast from La Trobe Asia. If you like the podcast, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or other podcasting platforms. You can follow us on Twitter. James is on at James Crabtree. I'm at Beck Strading. And Latrobe Asia is at Latrobe Asia. I'm Beck Strading and thanks for listening.